Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies Blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and the Garfield Firm. Servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now sitting in for Neil this week, it's your host, Charles Marshall. Hello everyone there in podcast land, formerly known as radio land. Uh, we are here on January 14th, 2021. We are here in a new year. And what we will discuss on the show today are trends that we can expect in this year. And I am going to be emphasizing during the show the interface of COVID-19 uh, rules, regulations, strictures, For the most part, the architecture of all this is not a true body of law. It doesn't come out of a legislature in the vast majority of cases. Uh, Some people even consider most of these regulations to be edicts coming out of uh, governor-directed task force in the various states. Uh, They may or may not have some kind of scientific basis for for them, that is, the restrictions. Nevertheless, whatever, whatever anybody thinks about the politics of the COVID-19 regulations or the science behind it, or the lack of science behind it, uh, as is your take, regardless, there is a semi-permanent architecture now. It doesn't appear that it's going to go away. So I think it's really critical and certainly useful, I would would argue critical, to discuss uh, what is going to be the kind of COVID-19 impacted lay of the land in the foreclosure arena in 2021. What are we likely to see? And I will say, uh, just as a quick aside, that uh, in Neil's show last week, he did talk about a development between himself, myself, and Bill Padalo. Uh, we are joining forces in a more formal way, and it's very uh, useful to contact Neil uh, through his various websites and uh, contact information uh, should you be looking for additional information on that front. Now, in terms of the foreclosure fronts, uh, again, I, I think there, there may still be a perception among some of the uh, listeners here, certainly among some of the public, that the COVID-19 restrictions are just going to go away somehow uh, in the next few months, uh, possibly when there's a certain uptake of the vaccine that's associated with the COVID-19 situation. I don't really see any evidence for that. And since this show is about predicting trends, uh, one trend 
is what's called the new normal. Uh, as much as I kind of uh, blanch at that term, I think, unfortunately, it does describe where we're at as a country, uh, as Americans, you know, with or without foreclosure problems. The new normal is COVID-impacted, COVID-directed. Obviously, you can't even go to a restaurant or you can't even go outside without dealing with the very dense and elaborate and detailed regulations about every movement that you have uh, outside your your home, frankly. So, you know, without weighing in on whether this is a good or bad thing, it clearly is here. I don't see it going away anytime soon. Uh, Even with the vaccination situation, it appears that they're they're just going to be – viruses out there on the horizon and uh, because this is the way that this has been handled and the public has signed off on it I think we're going to have things like mask mandates and social distancing as a semi-permanent part of uh, American life so what does that mean in the foreclosure world what does that mean in the legal arena well I'll jump right into that. Uh, I think the critical question, and I'm I'm certainly getting this, is there really going to be a foreclosure tsunami in 2021? Of course, that's a legitimate question. And that ties in very directly with a very second uh, but primary question that I've been getting repeatedly. Will the eviction moratorium be maintained um, anywhere around the country and will Congress act to reinstate the 2020 rules? In terms of Congress acting, there's a kind of extension right now that you could say is extending the uh, the HUD-related uh, moratorium that does apply to about 10 million loans that are government financed. Now, that theoretically, and you know, I think it's it's accurate to say that it's been extended till January 30th. I think there's some caveats to that, but the, the general lay of that is that it's been extended till January 30th. I don't see any congressional action to extend beyond that. And again, these, all these situations are pretty complex and the, uh, the moving parts within them can change uh, and, and do change often week by week, certainly month by month. So I think we need to stand by on that. Uh, nevertheless, on the state front, uh, there are a lot of states that nevertheless are moving forward with uh, their own legal actions, notwithstanding any federal moratorium on collection of of default mortgage payments or moving a trustee property, like in a non-judicial foreclosure state like California, into essentially a default debt and then scheduling trustee sales. I mean, 
the the lay of the land is different now in that the vast majority of states had their own moratoriums and they really were for the most part protecting properties from going to sale or protecting post foreclosed uh, properties from evicting the uh, former homeowner. I think that's literally changed as we speak. And I can tell you for the California picture, which of course I'm quite familiar with since this is my home state and where I practice on the non-judicial foreclosure front, there are uh, properties that are going to sale as we speak. And I've seen some push after February I think part of that is because of the uh, the congressional extension until the end of January. Um, I don't have clients, you know, whose properties are going to sale in January, but it is a thing. It's a real thing. And there are evictions proceeding, and there are unlawful detainer lawsuits that were on hold as recently as November or December. And in Southern California, those are now being lined up to go forward. Uh, One thing I've noticed is both in Los Angeles County and Northern California counties like Alameda, San Francisco, Sacramento, uh, the San Jose area, what you're seeing in the counties up there is that unlawful detainer lawsuit trials are being scheduled for the early mid-March time period. And in Los Angeles, uh, where there is a jury trial, I'm also seeing that situation as well. So one of the, one of the fundamental takeaways here is that while there are protection still in place, partly at the federal level and even to some extent at the state level, Uh, what we're seeing here in California is an opening for the, the foreclosing parties and for, you know, the bona fide purchasers so-called who, as anybody who listens to the show knows, we oppose all the time and regularly, nevertheless, they still are out there pressing down on homeowners after they brought their properties to sale. They're still going through legal procedures to evict them. And on the unlawful detainer front, that uh, kind of quick summary process as it's practiced in California and so many other places, so many other states, that is taking shape, that is starting to play out. Here we are again. And some of the uh, some of the old tried and true uh, methods for legally and lawfully handling an unlawful detainer defense. Uh, I mean, obviously there is a legitimate role for bankruptcy. You wouldn't know that from the other side, and even some uh, authorities at the state level where unlawful detainer practice. Exists. 
exist and the body of law exists, you know, in all of the 50 states, uh, yes, there's a role for bankruptcy. Uh, yes, there can be a legitimate way of bringing an unlawful standard defense in bankruptcy. However, it's important for uh, listeners and those who are in the foreclosure situation, the post-eviction situation after the property has gone to sale, it's important for them to understand that they are going to be considered to be gaming the system. They are going to be considered to be illegitimate. And they are going to be considered breaking the rules, not just bending them. But, of course, the bankruptcy state does apply to their situations. Otherwise, they wouldn't uh, be able to take their cases into bankruptcy. Now, nationwide, not just in California, one one very important rule to keep in mind, whether you're facing an unlawful detainer in Michigan and uh, judicial foreclosure states like New York, Massachusetts, Florida, regardless of where you might be subject to an unlawful detainer lawsuit and you're being evicted from your home after a foreclosure, whether it was a non-judicial foreclosure or a judicial foreclosure, when you're in that suit to evict you and you're essentially treated legally as as an illegal tenant, because, of course, when you're in an unlawful detainer, you didn't have any legal agreement with the so-called owner at, at, at the later time. Uh, so you become what's called a holdover tenant. And the reality of that situation is that there is some legal procedure to protect you. In California, it's actually fairly extensive compared to some states. But the proceedings are all summary and things happen very quickly, nevertheless. So you can go into bankruptcy court. That will buy you some time. Um, Of course, I'm not advocating that, and I know how the other side looks at these issues. Nevertheless, there are legal procedures that you can take, and whatever the difficulties and whatever the caveats, you can consult with legal counsel in whatever state you're in to find out how those unlawful detainer proceedings would work. Uh, The other piece that I'm going to be talking about today, which is critical, um, it's the issue of jury trials. Now, I'm going to kind of double back uh, in a bit to the unlawful detainer scenario again, but the jury trial scenario is very COVID-impacted. So on the one hand, yes, you have a right to jury trials, and yes, how that looks in various states varies a fair amount. So whether you're being subjected to a judicial foreclosure or whether you're being subjected to a non-judicial foreclosure, uh, jury trials are available to you. Now, an argument in favor of jury trials for litigants, whether they are in a judicial foreclosure where they're, they're defending or whether they're in a kind of I won't use the word preemptive, I was about to, but that's kind of a bad word in California because one of the ways that the uh, appellate courts in California kind of shut down and even make fun of 
uh, the underlying lawsuits that bring an appeal, which they then hear related to foreclosures, is they say, oh, well, that's a preemptive lawsuit. You can't do that. And preemptive has come to mean any any lawsuit where your property didn't actually go to sale. Now, in reality, of course, it's more complicated than that. And there's a case law argument to make that as long as you've been subjected to a notice of default and a notice of trustee sale in a non-judicial state such as California, and then you sue in the face of that, that's not necessarily a preemptive lawsuit. Though, of course, there is case law to say that it is. Uh, The case law saying that it's not is still somewhat going, somewhat certainly developing, but it's not non-existent. The short of what I'm saying is that when you are in a judicial foreclosure as a defendant or a non-judicial foreclosure, as a plaintiff, there are arguments for and against jury trials. And I will go over that now. Because of all legal procedure, I think this is the most heavily COVID impacted and compacted. What I'm seeing is that courts all over the country, and it's certainly true here in California, are establishing a set of rules, internal rules, and most of these rules, by the way, are subject to what are called local court rules. I think every legal practitioner out there and many paralegals and even a lot of listeners who are not legal personnel themselves, I think among all those groups, most people will know that there is a kind of legal uh, framework within all courts, and it goes by the both denotative and connotative term of local rules. And what that framework is, it's simply saying, look, you're in my court. These are the rules you go by. And typically, these will be jurisdiction-wide. So, if you're in, let's say, the Northern District of California and you're in federal court in San Francisco or San Jose, where that's where the Northern District is, those rules are going to be district-wide. Sometimes they might be even local to the specific court location, like San Francisco. More likely, they're within that jurisdiction. And then you'll get local rules within a county of California for the Superior Court Now, you can get some uh, far-flung counties like San Bernardino or Riverside where you've got a bunch of different courts, including a lot of satellite ones. There might be local rules in the satellite ones that you don't see elsewhere because the satellite courts, frankly, are are dealing with a lot of different logistical uh, situations where they don't necessarily have court personnel. They don't necessarily have the court resources that the main city, such as Riverside, Uh, the city of Riverside and Riverside County, to give an example. So these local rules consistently in California, and I'm seeing this promulgated and enacted all over the country, this is how they're setting up jury trials. 
they're saying, well, you may have had anywhere from 10 to 12 jurors previously for civil trials. You may have had anywhere from 60% to two-thirds to 70% is another figure I've seen. And again, depending on what state and even what county within a state you're in, you're going to see civil trials conducted under this rubric when there's a jury. The the prevailing party rules may stipulate, may mandate that anywhere from 60 to three-fourths of the jurors agree on the ruling. Uh, when you look at the number of jurors, you could even have less than 10, though 10 to 12 is pretty common. There are some states with fewer. What we're seeing now, and this is, again, I can reference California, of course, because I practice here, details. We're seeing the social distancing uh, aspects show up even in the jury uh, setting so that they're judges that are just openly asking litigants when they're on the phone for a case management conference, when they're on the phone for a trial setting conference. They're asking the litigants, oh, well, you know, because of the COVID situation, we're heavily impacted and we really need everyone to step up and agree to have less of a jury pool, agree to have a lower standard for who is the prevailing party. And uh, frankly, uh, I see these as whittling away fundamental constitutional rights. The way state legislatures have developed their jury uh, rules on the civil side, just like the criminal, of course it's varied. Of course it's complex. Uh, There are a lot of different variations. There are a lot of different exceptions even within a given state. However, the architecture for that in all those states, it tends to be pretty robust, meaning whatever the civil jury rules are in California or even in a place like Louisiana where they're very, very kind of impacted by the Napoleonic Code, for instance. Regardless, whatever you're looking at, uh, those rules have been around sometimes for centuries and certainly for decades. And now, all of a sudden, we're being asked to simply upend those rules to accommodate the COVID-19 situation. Well, that is part of the new normal. And I think both litigants and the legal practitioners, the attorneys they use, uh, the paralegals that they might use at times to help them if they're pro se or pro per, Everybody who's in the litigation environment is going to have to take a look at these rules in detail and decide what you're willing to do. I will say that for now, I don't see legislative action yet. I think that's coming for now. And I see this certainly not just a trend for 2021, but it's the new normal for 2021. Litigants are going to have to decide how they want to handle the jury situation, they are going to be pushed into certainly lowering the number of jurors who consider their case and possibly the standard by which the case is decided. So look for that 
it's already there in your jurisdiction. You'll simply have to inform yourself and make decisions about it. And then there's the issue of, you know, virtual reality now literally taking over the complete legal arena. I think we're there. I think that's the new normal. I don't believe that we're going to be going back to a situation where people just pile into courtrooms routinely and all hearings are defaults as they were up until the end of 2019, the early part of 2020. All hearings, the default was you go to court, whatever you're advancing your position, defense or plaintiff, doesn't matter. You go to court, the judges are there. If there's a jury, there's juries there. Other litigants with their cases are there. That's what a courtroom looks like. That is absolutely no longer the case any longer. It is the new normal. And I don't think this is temporary. I think whatever the specific COVID rules are and how they change and develop over time, courts are going to stick with using video and audio conferencing to even conduct jury trials. Yes, that's here in California. I know it's in other states as well. I can't give you a state-by-state breakdown. I think that's something that litigants should be looking at the way it's played out in California is that the jurors are uh, often fewer than would, would normally be the case. They literally are socially distanced to some extent within the jury box. It doesn't mean that they're literally six feet apart, but they're further apart than the typical situation where they would be side by side. And all of the deliberating uh, that goes on, um, that may still happen within the jury uh, uh, setting. That may still happen within the courtroom itself. But you'll often see the only participants at the courtroom, the jurors themselves, socially distance, and then the judge. And the judges support people, the bailiff, that type of thing, court reporter, et cetera. Uh, but you will see uh, testimony taken. You will see the litigants all calling in from a video or audio conferencing program. Now, typically for trials, there's still an expectation that being able to fully confront your accuser, and that is a principle in criminal law, but it also exists in civil law. The notion, of course, that's why you had in-person trials. That's why it wasn't done by declaration. That's why it wasn't done by mail and whatever. Uh, you had the right to confront the other litigants trying to take you down. And in the case of a criminal proceeding, that's the state, that's the people against an individual. In the case of a civil proceeding, that's two litigants going at it or multiple litigants going at it. So regardless, the new normal means you're going to be seeing jury trials even and certainly virtually all other court proceedings. I think it's fair to say all court proceedings taking place virtually, including settlements, including settlement conferences. So Zoom is a very uh, popular format program already out there, uh, very heavily used in California. It's the absolute standard 
in federal court in California. All the districts are using it. It's becoming, uh, let's put it this way, I haven't seen a lot of Zoom hearings at the state court level and the various county courts. I have seen Zoom-like hearings, and they're using formats and programs that are that are not necessarily modeled directly after Zoom. Nevertheless, they're using the Zoom architecture. So this is where we're at. Uh, a moratorium, I don't believe, is going to stop some foreclosures and unlawful detainer cases from going forward. I do think that litigants can continue to use jury trials uh, selectively and within PACT, but for all legal procedure, you need to look at the COVID play, the COVID factor. So that's all the time we have for today. You will be back next week, and I will be back myself on a future show. The opinions expressed on The Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me.